And we'll continue working through uh, biblical theology, and we're using sort of as a um, guide for us Von Robertson or Von Roberts' uh, book, God's Big Picture. And we'll be looking at Genesis 3 and on as we look at the perished kingdom. The perished kingdom. So let's talk a bit first about the spread of sin and death. So ever since the fall, all human beings have been born facing the same predicament as Adam and Eve. What is that? Spiritual and physical death because of rebellion, the rebellion of our first parents. We too are sinners, rebels against God's rule, and we too face the punishment of death. That death is being not just a physical death, but also eternal separation from God because of our sin. Chapter 6 in the 1689, paragraph 3, puts it in this way. <clears throat> and again, our 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, a very helpful summary outline, a little systematic theology for your pocket <laughs> that helps us uh, as we think through these things. Men have thought through these things and articulated them in a way that's very helpful for us. And so we want to reference the 1689 which says in chapter six, in paragraph three, chapter six on the fall of man and his punishment, it says, by God's appointment, they were, Adam and Eve, the root and the representatives of the whole human race. Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted and their corrupt nature passed on. To who? all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. Everyone who's not Christ. Their descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath. The servants of sin willingly and partakers by death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. In other words, men are by nature enslaved to their sin. The New Testament says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. <clears throat> God appointed Adam and Eve as our, or Adam as our representative. And in the beginning of paragraph four in that same chapter six in the 1689, it says, all actual transgressions arise from this first corruption. And by it, we are completely inclined toward all that is evil. A great synopsis of man's condition by nature. We are opponents of God. Um, the Bible says that we are enemies of God. We're opponents of him. By nature now, we fight against the Lord. Um, and I've used this example before. If you think about a boxing ring and there's a guy in one corner and he has blue shorts and the guy in another corner and he has red shorts and they are opponents. <clears throat> when the announcer says, <clears throat> excuse me, let's get ready to rumble. We already know something's about to go down. A fight is about to happen, right? Blue shorts, red shorts, they're about to fight. They are opponents in this ring. And the Bible uses this language to speak of us and says that we are opponents of God. We are enemies 
of God. I think my rumble did that. <laughs> we are opponents, enemies of God by nature, separated from him. And so the Bible doesn't use light language to talk about our disposition to the Lord. It uses strong language and says that by nature we are haters of God. And so Adam's sin was accounted to us. Why? Because the Lord appointed him as our representative, our federal head. Another way of saying Adam represented all mankind. And so we saw that last week when we looked at Romans 5, verses 12 to 19. But what about Adam's corrupt nature? <clears throat> Do we see evidence of that? Do we see evidence of Adam's corrupt nature in humanity? Well, all you have to do, I think, is turn on the news. It's right in front of you. It's uh, this entertainment-driven uh, media that entertains by bringing out man's sinfulness and depravity in creation. All from the top, from the oldest to the youngest, we see sin. News report after news report from the very old to the very young. Man sinning and being sinned against. <clears throat> Turn on the TV, it's right in front of you. Or better yet, all you really have to do <laughs> is put your thumb to the pulse of your own heart. Do you find it easy to obey? Do you find uh, this fight when it comes down to progressing in sanctification? Is that, is that something that comes to you easily? Or is, this, is there this tension always, this, this fight, this, this drawing back of, your, of, of yourself and your affections from progressing in sanctification? I think this is evidence of a corrupt nature. <clears throat> Do you keep God's commandments with ease? Is it usually easy or hard for you to move forward in holiness. I think I could speak for all of us, maybe. I know the answer. It's hard. <laughs> it's not easy. How do I know that's the answer? I cheated and I read Ephesians chapter 2. All of us <laughs> struggle. We have this struggle by nature <clears throat> and this fight by nature because of sin. Sin in Adam and sin in us. What about uh, the evidence of a corrupt nature in children? <laughs> if you have kids, your kids often remind you that they are not immune <laughs> from a corrupt nature. They are not immune. My kids reminded me this morning that they are not immune from a corrupt nature. <laughs> it's before us always, and it's evident to us. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You can turn there. Let's, let, let's turn there together. Many of you have read this. You are extremely familiar with Ephesians chapter 2. But let us be reminded of these things. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Let me have someone read that for us. Whoever gets there first. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Thank you. So we see it, it evident here. 
We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body of the mind, which all men do by nature, <coughs> as children of wrath. Paul says <coughs> here we were, but he doesn't deny uh, the reality that sin is present. We see that in the rest of Paul's writings in scripture. So you're not unique in your bent towards and the corruption of your nature. You're bent towards sin and the corruption of your nature. It's evident in our affections. What we do, what we feel, what we think. And this corruption doesn't take long to show itself um, in scripture after the fall. <clears throat> Let's look at Psalm um, 51 verse, verse 5. Psalm 51, verse 5, and thinking about Adam's corrupt nature, passed on. Psalm 51, verse 5. It says this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from conception, we inherit Adam's corrupt nature, which is... Confession says, all those through natural procreation has been, it's, it's been passed on to his, his corrupt nature and Adam's sin as our representative. <clears throat> and so we see plainly that man's depravity, man's depravity today in creation, in his nature. And it doesn't take long in Genesis for it to be plainly seen in Adam's first children by nature, Cain and Abel. So we're going to look through and work through for the rest of the class, chapters 4 through chapter 11 of Genesis. We're not going to read verse by verse. We're just going to sort of take it in, in chunks and try and follow uh, our theme in biblical theology to see, to follow the thread. And the thread we're following here now is the perished kingdom because of sin and the spread of sin through all creation. So... It's no surprise that the account of the sin of Adam and Eve in chapter 3 is followed by the account of the first murder in the very next chapter as one of their sons murders his brother. Once the vertical positive relationship with God was broken, the tear in vertical relationships with one another will be broken as well. <clears throat> we don't love each other like we should because we don't love the Lord like we should. Ultimately, this relationship informs this relationship. <clears throat> so Genesis 4, 1 to 10 records for us Cain's jealousy for his brother who found favor with God. And it records the first murder in the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. And we're, we'll, we'll read verses 1 through 10. Go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> so let me have someone read Genesis 4, 1 through 10 for us. Thank you, Preston. Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said... I have gotten man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord, 
of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. And am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Amen. So this is very interesting, the uh, language here in Genesis chapter 4. <clears throat> Cain rises up. He kills his brother, Abel. The Lord comes looking for him. Abel, where are you? <clears throat> Does that sound familiar? Abel, or Cain, where are you? We see the same language in Genesis 3. Speaking to man, Adam, where are you? And Cain lies after God asks him, where is your brother? And he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> In other words, what kind, of, what kind of question is that? Am I to, to, to tend to him? He's, he's covering his sin. And it's, it's interesting here. I'm going to jump down to verse uh, 25 in Genesis 4. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. So Seth also, was, uh, so Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Remember Genesis 3 and the offspring language of verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, speaking to Satan, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Leader Costner comments here and says this. We start to see his Satan's offspring early. Cain was a wicked man. First John says that Cain was of the evil one because he murdered his brother. First John 3.12. Cain was not the physical offspring of the devil. So as that stands against some of this, these ideas and uh, some have a false, corrupted theology in that they would say, well, Satan uh, had um, relations with Eve and Cain was the offspring. That's not what's being said here. Cain is not the physical offspring of the devil. We know that Cain was the result of Adam and Eve's union. But spiritually, he was the son of Satan. Rather than submitting to God's will, he was given over to hatred and murder. In contrast, the New Testament portrays Abel as a righteous man. 
The difference in Cain and Abel's spiritual standing is seen by what happened when they offered sacrifices. Both brought, brought some of the fruits of their labor. Abel brought the best of his lambs, but Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground. We see this first fruits and fruits. And we see that actually throughout the rest of the Old Testament. This idea of offerings and grain offerings and first fruits and fruits. Abel brought the first fruits and Cain brought fruits of the ground. But it gets a little deeper than that. While scripture later specifies different occasions where grain offerings were acceptable, even required, if this was a sacrifice for sin, if this offering that they both brought was a sacrifice for sin, a sin offering, then part of the reason Cain's offering would be rejected, not acceptable to God, was because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. There's a lot going on here in Genesis chapter 4 with these offerings, both, both boys, both men coming and bringing this offering, the fruits of the ground, the first fruits, Cain tended to cattle, or Abel tended to cattle, and Cain tended to the fruit of the ground. Continuing on, it says, Hebrews says that Abel's sacrifice was because he offered it in faith, Hebrews 11.4. So conversely, Cain's heart was the main factor in God's rejection of his sacrifice, possibly manifested itself, and this possibly manifested itself in what Cain offered. And so it's very interesting here, and we can almost presume that this knowledge of a sacrificial offering was before them or apparent to them by what the Lord did when he covered Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal. Something had to die for them to be given skins. And so in Genesis 4 here, as we consider the spread of sin and the fall and the first murder, I want to give us a little peek into what's going on here in Genesis 4 between these two men as they offer these sacrifices. Okay, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Let's jump down to uh, Genesis chapter 5. As we consider, so we're moving from Cain and Abel. As we talk about the spread of sin, we're moving from Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4 to mortality in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5 contains the first genealogy in the Bible. Human beings are obeying God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Even after the fall, their offspring still bear the image of God. So your wicked neighbor or co-worker or whoever is still the image of God. It's tainted, but they're still the image of God. The writer in Genesis stresses that just as Adam was created in the likeness of God, so his son Seth was in his likeness. We see that in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 5. But it is a marred image. Human beings also bear the marks of sin. As a result, just as in chapter 4, sin was passed down to the next generation. So we find in chapter 5 that its consequence, death, is also inherited. Those early humans may have lived many years, but a refrain runs through the chapters, through, through chapter 5. And this refrain is what? Then he died. 
Let's read verses 6 to 15 of Genesis chapter 5. Verses 6 to 15. And whoever gets there, feel free to read it for us. Mahalel, I think. He now lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalel had lived 965 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thank you. And then verse 17 says, Then all the days of Mahalalel, I think it is, were 895 years, and he died. So the refrain of these verses is, And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's very interesting that, well, for me, as I've uh, tried to peek in and I, look, I see advertisements on TV, and it seems that these advertisements use very interesting language to sell what they're selling. One of the advertisements and companies that sticks out to me is, um, I think it's CoverGirl. This sounds weird. That's, that's the makeup company, right? Is, is it CoverGirl? And you might maybe wonder why are you paying attention to CoverGirl ads. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I have a point here. In these ads, it's very interesting the language that they use as they sell makeup. So let me know if this language sounds familiar to you. Age-defying beauty. Age-defying beauty. Fountain of youth. Reverse your wrinkles. Now, I'm not, this isn't to speak against anyone, any women who use this makeup, Maybelline, CoverGirl, whatever. But it's very interesting that you would almost forget that you're watching a commercial about makeup because all of a sudden it gets very spiritual or mythological. They want to, they, they, they want to, they almost want to freeze time and space and they sell to you that you can freeze time and space and retain your youthful beauty. This makeup is age-defying. It reverses your wrinkles. No. <laughs> you can't stop time and retain beauty. And he died. And he died. And he died. The Bible stands up and says, false. No. The refrain is clear from scripture, Adam's sin, and in his sin, death spread to all men, even creation. Again, sometimes the dialogue in these commercials speak as if you can top, stop time and space. 
we know this is not true. We cannot stop time and space to preserve youthfulness forever. The Bible weighs these commercials and finds them wanting. Proverbs actually praises the woman who fears the Lord and reminds us that placing one's hope in outward appearance is vain. We do all we can to blunt the harsh reality of death. We even try to avoid mentioning the word. Vaughn Roberts uh, talks about going to a hospital here in America. He's from the UK. He talks about going to a hospital here in America that referred to death as, listen, negative patient care outcome. Negative patient care outcome. You would almost wonder, what in the world are you talking about? Did they die or did they not die? <laughs> the Bible, or not the Bible, the world uses this language, and we get it. They want to sort of soften the reality of this. But think about this. My dog had negative patient care outcome. I'm so sorry to hear about your friend's negative patient care outcome. I never want to have negative patient care outcome. I, I, I don't want to make light of death. But my point is, for all the euphemisms, we cannot avoid it. Death comes to us all. It is a reality. And I understand why this happens, but I think it ends up desensitizing us to this reality. It desensitizes us to view something so unnatural by sort of making us feel like it is natural. <clears throat> Sin has a 100% kill rate. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, 22 reminds us that in Adam all die. <clears throat> okay, let's jump to verse, uh, chapter 6 to 9 as we deal with the flood. Again, spread of sin, Cain and Abel, <clears throat> mortality, now the flood. <clears throat> so a few generations have come and gone, but sin is very much alive. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 6 says, For the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. <clears throat> and so God acts in judgment against man's sin. The Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Verse seven there. Animal, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. The resulting flood causes catastrophic destruction. The Lord wipes out everything. It's a reversal of creation. It was a cleansing of the earth, not a destroying of the earth, but a cleansing of the earth. And this same type of cleansing will happen again at the end of this age when Jesus Christ returns, except that cleansing will be by fire. So what's happening here is this division between earth and the waters which God established on the first day of creation. It's undone. 
There is a return to the chaos which existed before the world was made. Once again, water covers the earth. So I was going back and forth <laughs> with myself when I thought about or when I read through verse 7 and I said to myself, for I am grieved that I have made them. Shall I stop and spend time to bring out this aspect of the Lord being grieved <laughs> or the Lord repenting that he made man. Some of your Bibles may say, you may, you may be reading that, and it says the Lord repented that he made man. And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I said, you know what? Yes, I think it'll be helpful. As we talk about biblical theology, I think it'll be helpful for us to have categories uh, to understand some of the language in scripture. The Bible talks about, it uses um, words like regret and grieve. The Lord was grieved that he made man. He regretted. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, 19 says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Genesis seems to be saying that the Lord regretted. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says that the Lord will not have regret. How do we understand what's being said here? What does it mean? I think it's helpful for us when we talk about, when, when we hear this different language in scripture, regret, repentance, these different things, that we interpret the language in light of the one of whom we're talking about, right? So here's an example, this is, this is what I mean. If I am sitting down and I'm watching, let's say the Olympics and uh, they're about to start the 100 meter race and all the men are on the blocks and the gun goes off and the men run down the track and they're running and they're running and they're running and I'm watching this and you guys are all, all of you are in the room with me. We're watching this together. And I say, man, this guy is flying down the track. When I use that language, because I'm watching the Olympics, because I'm speaking of a man, you don't even flinch. Can men fly? No. <laughs> You've interpreted the word flying in relation to the nature of the one of whom I'm speaking. Flying is applied to man. We know man can't fly, and so you don't even think twice about it. He's flying down the track. You keep eating your popcorn, drinking your juice, it doesn't bother you. If I get up and I walk to a window and I look out the window and I say, I say, there's a bird flying by the window. You don't flinch either because you've interpreted flying in light of the thing of whom I'm speaking about, the nature of the thing. We know birds fly. So it doesn't bother us. I'm use, I use the same word, but because of who it's applied to, you interpret it properly according to the nature of the thing of whom you're talking about. When the Bible talk, when the Bible uses repent of God or regret of God and repent of man or regret of man, it has to be interpreted in light of the one of whom we're talking. Men repent. Men regret. Men do one thing, they change their mind and they do another. 
repent, when talking about men, means they're going one direction, they stop, they go another. When repentance or repent or regret is used in light of God, we have to interpret it in light of God's nature. God is immutable. He does not change. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Nothing happens to the Lord that catches him off guard, and so he changes his mind. <clears throat> and so how should we understand this? Um, Sam Renahan, in his book, uh, A Primer, God Without Passions, says this. When scripture speaks of God repenting, regretting, or relenting, why does it say that? The point of connection is not between the emotional state of a human that repents in some emotional state and God, but, to, but in the action taken. When someone repents, they stop doing what they are doing and they begin to do something else. So also, God created man, then he destroyed man. God made Saul king, then he removed him, and God threatened judgment on Nineveh, then he removed the sentence of judgment. You can call that repentance because of the analogy between God's action and human actions without taking along with it the baggage of human emotional turmoil. <clears throat> he continues, when we repent, it is because something confronts us and we are changed. Spiritually speaking, we turn from sin to righteousness. Generally speaking, we encounter some problem, we regret a decision, and we redo something or start over or do something else. He says, God's existence is not bound by time. Quite the contrary, God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, and he accomplishes all his holy will. So can a simple spiritual God who has decreed all things and cannot be hindered, can that God repent? No, in the sense that we do. But did he decree from all eternity both to create man, then to destroy man? To make Saul king, then to remove him? Absolutely. And those actions are described to us in human language, anthropomorphic language. So how can God make man then repent of made, making man? He decreed to make man, then decreed <laughs> that he would destroy man. That's the answer. <laughs> it's God's eternal divine decree. He didn't see man, man sinned, and he said, oh man, I didn't see this coming. Let me come up with another plan. Or he didn't look at sin and say, oh, I'm so mad. Let me destroy this. this. This just makes me so upset. And then he destroys or he cleanses the earth. God simply decreed that he would make man and then decreed that he would destroy him. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> that was, I felt, a necessary aside. Um, as, I, I, as I hope it gives, gives us categories uh, to understand this language in scripture. I think we should also remember there's a semantic range to the words that are used in the original languages. And that, that word has a broad semantic range. Sure. One of which is a feeling of loss, mm. which you can just imagine that God did have a feeling of loss. Not that he was surprised, right. but he had a feeling of loss, 
of what had occurred right. based on his original creation. Intent, yeah. Amen. That's good. That's good. Okay, let's, uh, let's jump down to the Tower of Babel. So again, the spread of sin. Cain and Abel, mortality, the flood, and now the Tower of Babel. And we'll close out here on this point. The Tower of Babel, chapter 11. God preserves one family through the flood. Who was that family? Noah, the sons, their wives. But sadly, so did sin. Sorry, but sadly, so did sin in God's generation respond to it, namely judgment. Chapter 11 brings us to the lowest point in the Bible so far. Human beings proudly saying, come, let us build ourselves a city, which tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. That's the issue. Uh, Chapter 11, verse four is where I'm reading. Let us build a tower to the Lord that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. The Tower of Babel is a symbol of our sinful desire to exalt ourselves and create our own independent kingdom. But he's not indifferent, the Lord is not indifferent to our arrogance. He frustrates the people's empire building by scattering them throughout the earth and giving them different languages. Human beings are now divided, not just from God, but from one another. So there's a building of a tower they want to reach the heavens and this isn't um, a display of uh, ecumenism and working togetherness uh, to show uh, man's resilience as they want to build a tower together Uh, this is a picture of rebellion they were to be spreading God's image across the earth and they're together building a tower to make a name for themselves the issue there And God spreads them over the face of the earth. It's judgment, but it's also a blessing uh, because they were to be spread over the face of the earth and spreading God's image. And so the Tower of Babel is a picture of our wanting to build a name for ourselves. It's rebellion against the Lord. So at this point in Genesis, we've seen sin, the spread of sin. We've seen the first murder in the Bible. We've seen mortality that men die, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's inescapable. Um, We've seen the flood, and we've seen the Tower of Babel. The perfect creation that God had established is now nothing but a distant dream. The pattern of the kingdom has been destroyed by sin. Human beings are no longer God's people by nature. We have turned away from him. We are no longer living in his place. We have been banished from the garden. And we reject his rule and live as if we ruled the world. This is apparent as you look out on creation and men. But God continues to reign, um, and he reigns in judgment. As a result, we do not enjoy God's blessing, but instead face his curse. A perfect world has been destroyed by human rebellion. 
And so this is where the Bible could have ended. It could have been cut. That could have been the end of the story. Then he died, then he died, then he died. Sin and rebellion, wickedness spreading, the intentions of their heart were only evil continually. That could have been the end of the story. But the Lord is gracious and the Lord has divinely decreed to save a people for himself. And as we continue to work through biblical theology in this class, we'll bring that out and look at a God who was sovereign, who was just, who was holy, who's immutable, he's unchanging, and how he, how the, how the triune God is glorified in the salvation of the elect. So with that, let me pray and close out. Father, we thank you that you have recorded for us in scripture um, what you have done and what you are doing and beginning to do in time and space in creation to glorify your holy name. Sin does not catch you off guard. Uh, Adam's rebellion against your positive law has not caught, it didn't catch you off guard. Eve's conversation with the serpent didn't catch you off guard. You are reigning, have been, and always will be. Yesterday, today, and forever, you are sovereign and you are God. And here, as we look at Genesis and look at the depravity of man and the darkness that is on the face of the earth because of sin and your um, creation rebelling against you, we are reminded of depravity, total depravity, utter depravity, corruption from the inside out. And Lord, we thank you for what you have recorded for us in scripture. We thank you that you didn't, this isn't the end of the story, but there is more to come. This isn't the end of the kingdom, but there is more to come. And as we continue to work through biblical theology during this Sunday school series, we pray that you would give us a good grasp, um, not mainly focusing on men and creation, but mainly focusing you on in what you have done in time and space in creation and redeeming a people for yourself. So as the story unfolds, Lord, may you give us grace and help us to see you um, as scripture has disclosed you to us and to recognize our great need for something that we cannot provide, which you provide in yourself, your own righteousness. We thank you for that, Lord. May you bless us now as we go into the congregation to hear the word preached. May we attend well to that means of grace and may you glorify yourself through your preached word. In Jesus' name, amen.